I want to answer those things. We've got to wrestle with hard stuff because we have, to have, we have to practice it as a church. So we have to have an actual way we do things, as every church does. So we'll look at that today. And even though I would strongly urge you to consider a believer's baptism, if you're baptized as a baby, I want you to hear that this is not an issue for us to divide over today. If you're baptized as a baby, this is your church. This is your home. This is where I want you to be. Well, here's what we're going to look at first as we look at the practice. Baptism is, first and foremost, an immersion into water. Kind of simple. Baptism is an immersion into water. And I hope as I, t- as I start today, I also want to, those of you who are kids or youth today, I really want you to think about this too. Maybe you haven't been baptized. Maybe you profess faith in Christ. I want you to really focus today. I see some of you in here, some of our youth. Focus, and I want you to listen to this today as we're talking about something that hopefully you will do too. Well, first, it's an immersion in water. The word baptize itself in the New Testament really just means to plunge, to dip, to immerse somebody or something, it doesn't have to be a person, into water. The basic meaning of the word really means to dunk underwater. Even though for us as as Christians, we'll see today, it's got a much richer meaning, doesn't it, than just, you know, dunking a dish in the sink to get the soap off it. You're baptizing a dish. It means more to us, though. It means more to us. Hopefully we see that today. I remember my baptism. As a young child, we lived in Florida, and I guess we didn't have a a baptistry at our church, and we went to someone's house after church in Florida. What does everybody have in their backyard in Florida? Yeah, they all got pools. Have you ever flown into Florida? You're like, whoa, they're everywhere. So we went to the backyard and and, and at the pool, and I got baptized there. I remember that uh, as a young child. Uh, I remember it pretty vividly. Uh, with even a little timidity, a little nerves, being dunked under the water by somebody else. I wouldn't let my brothers do that to me. Why would I let some guy that I just kind of know do that to me? Dunked and immersed, I remember that, in water and coming up from the water. I, I remember it, and I was young. The Bible seems to, to point to this general meaning of dunking. Take a look at Mark 1.5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, that's John the Baptist, and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist is baptizing in the river. It doesn't say next to it. They could have. If they were just bringing a little water out, sprinkling, or not beside it, they could have said that. But the Bible says in the river they were baptized. They were being plunged in and brought up out of the water. Well, Mark 1 9 through 10 goes on, that same chapter, to Jesus' baptism. Here's what Mark wrote. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So here is Jesus himself. Jesus' baptism. He comes up out of the water. Up out of the water. The picture is of Jesus being immersed and then coming up out of it. John pulls him back up out of the water. It's a beautiful, actually, and humble picture, too, if you think about it. Think of that for a moment. Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth, king of all kings, allowing someone to to, to dunk him underwater, placing himself in in the hands of somebody else and their care at that moment. It's a really humble picture of Christ, our Lord. But he was immersed and he's brought up. 
you know, along the way, I said we will answer some hard questions um, throughout this series. So let's say, um, maybe due to a physical inability in your own part to get inside a tub, or maybe you've got an extreme fear of water, just a, a phobia of water. Maybe because of those two things, you're avoiding being baptized because of this idea of immersion. What do we do? Here's what I would say. Don't let that keep you away. We would work through it. We'd discuss it. Uh, we'd talk about it. I'd want to hear from you and what are your concerns. And, and then we can make an exception. It's not legalistic that you have to be immersed, right? Uh, we don't want to be legalistic. And so if it came to a place where you had an amazing fear of water or just uh, for whatever reason you couldn't be dunked, then we would do something else like a sprinkling or a pouring. Don't let that keep you away, even if the primary, uh, what we see, the primary pattern is of an immersion in the Bible. Well, here's a second factor that points to immersion. Not only the word itself and the text, but here's a second one for us. Uh, baptism is a symbol, too, of the believer's union with Christ in his death, burial, and, and resurrection. When you're baptized as a believer by immersion, as, as Christ was, as, as we see they were by John the Baptist, they were dunked into the river and brought up. When you're baptized by immersion, it's really the clearest mode, we're calling it mode, whether that's sprinkling or immersion, the clearest mode that points to what Jesus went through for you in his life and then on the cross and in his death and in the tomb, and in the resurrection. His death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? As you come to identify by faith and repentance and trust, as you come to identify as a person with what Christ did, that work for you, so too you are dead to sin, as you heard Lauren read in that passage from Romans. And your old way of life, you're buried under the water, like Christ was buried in the ground in the tomb, you're buried in the, uh, in the water and you're brought back up. The symbolism there is so rich and it pictures the reality of this union. That if you've trusted Christ, you're united to Him in a really mysterious, almost mystical way, but a real way. You're, you're, you're bound to Him. You're wed to Him is another word we'd say. And that immersion... That symbolism is the reality of that union of death with him under the water, burial with him under the water, brought up out of the water res like he was resurrected from the grave. And that mode of immersion symbolizes and points us to that in a way that sprinkling just doesn't quite do. Well, and here too, again, Scripture points us in that direction. It's from our passage that Lauren read, Romans 6 three and four says this here's this this rich symbolism this rich meaning do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in newness of life so as he was buried 
you too were buried in some sense in baptism. As he was raised to new life, so too you will be. As sure as you've come up out of that water. As sure as that. To live, to walk, to trust, to go forward in life in a new way of living. As a faithful, repentant, committed, obedient disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's absolutely beautiful. The Lord gave us this to remind us. That picture of new life, of leaving behind your sin. It doesn't mean you're flawless or perfect, but it means you have a new heart and a new desire to go a new direction, to leave your old life behind and to live now for the Lord and Savior who died for you and rose for you. Beautiful. It's so rich with meaning. Well, Titus says this. Take a look in Titus 3.5 about this picture that Scripture points us to this uh, idea of immersion as well. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Well, even though the verse doesn't itself say the word baptism, or speak of baptism, the immersion of baptism is a picture of the washing away that you see there. The washing away of sins. That Christ takes them on and gives you His righteousness. That's a picture of that. As, he, as through regeneration, as you're born again, nothing like getting fully dunked, right? Symbolizes that and, and is closely tied to that idea of being, having your sins washed away. White as snow, the song, the song says, right? Blotting them out is another way to put it. Whiting them out. Um, that a picture that we see, the immersion gives us that full picture. So that's the kind of the initial practice of baptism. We see in Scripture most clearly from actually how they did it, but also the last couple of verses, the symbolic connection to Jesus Christ that the practice of baptism the New Testament pattern was one of immersion. Immersion. Let's look at the pattern then. We see the practice of immersion. Let's look at the pattern of baptism. To do so, I, I want to give us a, qu- a quick as I can overview, which is easier said than done, a quick overview of a few different positions or views on baptism. It's just a way for us to kind of all kind of know a little bit about the history of the church and why uh, there's been some different views. Some of you may have grew up in a church that baptized infants that we talked about at the beginning, whether it's Catholic or in the Protestant tradition, we have uh, Presbyterians that baptize infants or Lutherans that baptize uh, infants. Now, it is. It is important to recognize this, to recognize these differences. And it's important to talk about because there are some very unique differences. But the point is this. As a church, we have to also, and I have to as your pastor and your elders too, have to come to a decision on how we will practically and rightly just administer these ordinances. We have to do that for the sake of unity, for the sake of um, just even organization in a body, so it's not just chaos and everybody we just decide. We have to decide, too. We just have to. So let's do this. We're going to do a quick general overview of some of the different positions you'll see coming up on a little chart behind me here. We're going to come back to this a few times, so uh, you don't have to copy it down or anything, but we'll, 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 it'll be up there a few different times. 
But let's take a look. The first few, so on the top we've got, the tra- left side we've got the tradition, the three different traditions we're going to talk about. On the top we've got the mode, so how they do it, the who gets baptized, and the meaning of it. Now this is pretty general. There's some nuances we're going to talk about, and even nuances between where you see Presbyterian, Lutheran, Reformed. There's some nuances. We're not going to get into all of that today, but let's do at least a little bit. So we've got the first view, the Roman Catholic view, second Presbyterian, we're calling it, and the third we're calling believer baptism, which is where we would fall. The, now the Roman Catholic pattern is that the mode they use is a, a sprinkling, <clears throat> a sprinkling of water. First and foremost, because the majority of baptisms done in the Catholic Church are on babies. And it's administered to inf- uh, infants, um, and it's an important distinction here, because the Catholic Church believes that baptism actually is what causes you to be born again. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you did. Baptism is what causes you to be regenerated, so be given a new heart, uh, to be born again. Uh, that's, that is an important distinction. So the baptism of an infant then, in the Catholic Church uh, doctrine, gives uh, a saving grace to the recipient even apart from actual faith, given that infants can't actually express a cognitive faith, can they? They can't have a conversation with you, they can't quite understand, but the belief is that the baptism itself infuses, transforms, changes an infant into a disciple of Jesus Christ, even apart from actual belief taking place. Look at a couple quotes, because I want to make sure you're not, I'm just making things up. I want to go to actual sources. So look at a couple quotes from Ludwig Ott. He's the author of a standard reference work on Catholic theology called Fundamentals of Catholic Doctrine. Here's a, here's a couple quotes. Baptism, that's popping up there. There we go. Baptism is the sacrament in which, what we would call an ordinance, they might call it a sacrament, uh, in which man being washed with water in the name of the three divine persons is spiritually reborn. So the act itself causes you to be born again. Um, uh, he also says, he goes on to say, baptism by water is since the promulgation, big word just means the beginning, of the gospel and spreading is necessary for salvation. Okay? It's absolutely necessary. So essentially the position is that when you're baptized in the Catholic Church, grace is uh, infused. In you, Or think of even a baptism tank, filling it with water. When you're baptized in the Catholic Church, grace like water in a tub is poured into you. That's kind of the position. So think of water in a tub or in your kitchen sink. And that you're spiritually reborn through the act, through the act of sprinkling. Uh, it causes regeneration. And because of that then, baptism is absolutely necessary then for salvation. And an issue for us is the fact that the Bible seems to be clear as we want to talk real issues. And even if you uh, were raised in a Catholic background, it's good to wrestle with things from time to time. That the Bible seems pretty clear that we're saved by faith alone, not by an outward work or action. Let's take a look at a verse. For by grace you've been saved, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, even the faith, I would say, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it does cause us to ponder and think for a minute. Wait a minute. We're saved by grace through faith. 
And even the faith you possess, possess yourself is a gift from God. Ephesians said, not, not a work to do so you can save yourself, so you can't boast, you can't brag, you can't take credit. Only credit goes to God. Well, so the Catholic view, as you think about um, baptism and what takes place, is somewhat similar to what was going on in the book of Galatians. Somewhat similar. So what was happening there? The book of Galatians, there were Jewish Christians, they're real Christians now, but Jewish Christians who were coming along saying that, well, Faith in Jesus is good. It's essential. It's necessary. But we also need circumcision. You also have to have that. And so it, it was created kind of a distinction or a class uh, system almost within the church of those who had faith in Jesus, but those who really were serious and got circumcised. It, it is a common kind of parallel. And what was Paul's response to that? He said, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Paul was pretty clear. Paul was pretty clear that we should not add anything to faith and that you can't actually add anything to faith, that you're saved by faith alone through grace alone. And so we do have to wrestle with that as Protestants and Catholics, and it's one of the reasons Martin Luther came along even, and, and they wrestled with this because they loved the Lord, not because they were enemies, because they love God and they want to get closer to the truth. So we too have to wrestle with it. We do. Now, I believe, of course, that there are people who come to saving faith in the Catholic Church. I believe that. And that we have much we agree on. Yet, this is cru crucial. When the Bible teaches you're saved by faith alone, and to be fair, there are some hints, hints in Catholic teaching that there's some faith that's needed to be present, but then it's also said it doesn't matter. So it's a little confusing, but to be fair... Um, but the Bible says we're saved by faith alone. Uh, and my conscience even binds me to that, that I have to talk about it as we're going to talk about baptism. So let's, let's move on. From, so we got our Catholic view a little bit. Let's move on to our Protestant now counterpart that baptizes infants too. And our second one that would be, we're calling it the Presbyterian view. But really underneath that you could put Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopal, uh, Methodist that all um, sprinkle infants or probably immerse adults. Um, so we'll kind of put them in there. Even though there are some differences, let's take a look at it. Now, whereas the Catholic believes that baptism causes regeneration, born again for the infant or even the adult, this view, Presbyterian view, believes that babies of believers should be baptized as the promise of the new covenant. Like babies, were circumcised in the Old Testament. Let me say that again, because that's really the key right there. Presbyterians believe that babies of believers now should be baptized as a sign of the new covenant, Christ's death and resurrection, because in the Old Testament, they took all babies and really everybody, every male, and circumcised, circumcised them, and that was a sign of the covenant. That's the connection for them. That's the connection there. Now, let me be clear. Presbyterians, Lutherans, different ones I mentioned, believe we are saved by faith alone. They believe that. They were at the forefront of that. Um, this is different than what we're just talking about with um, the Catholic view. The logic kind of goes like this. Take a look from Wayne Grudem. He says, in the New Testament, the outward sign of entrance into the covenant community, that's God's people, is baptism. Therefore, baptism is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision. 
It follows that baptism should be administered to all infant children of believing parents. And they would go on to say to deny them this benefit is deprive them of privilege and benefit that is rightfully theirs. The sign of belonging to the community of God's people. The covenant community. Now Grudem's not a Presbyterian. He doesn't believe that himself, but he's just uh, on, in his systematic theology talking about that. Here it is. People were brought into the Old Testament covenant through, uh, community through circumcision and the New Testament community covenant entrance is symbolized by baptism, so we baptize babies. I mean, you can see the logic, right? I mean, you look at, well, the logic, it, I mean, it does. The logic sounds right. And I know even Colossians has a clear connection between circumcision and baptism in a passage you're going to read in your life groups. And yet, circumcision was given to every, every male Jewish uh, descendant or even servants who came to your house apart from any, even any, real inner spiritual life. That's how it was practiced. If you, came, if you were just a part of God's people, you were circumcised. Whether you came into the community, you were a servant, whether you had any spiritual fruit or uh, even really expressed a love for God, you just did it. You didn't need to have an inner spiritual life. It was a physical, outward sign, you might say. But we need to realize, though, that even though circumcision was given to every male as entrance into God's people, his covenant community, true circumcision has always been a matter of what? Do you know? The heart. The heart. Let's take a look at Romans 2, uh, 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, not by the letter. So what matters, Paul is saying, his argument in the entire book of Romans is what really matters is true belief and the Spirit working in your heart, not just an outward act. A true Jew, Paul is saying, is one of the heart. And add to that the clear fact that just being born a Jew didn't make you a part of the people of God. Look at Romans 9.6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Even though God had a people and lots of the men and were brought in and, and people were part and families are part of the covenant community because they were circumcised and servants too, there was always a true Israel inside Israel. Those that actually really believed the promises of God. In the same way, in any given church, there's a bunch of people, and there's people within the church that actually believe, and people who are here checking it out, trying it out, or maybe just are, don't believe at all, but just are here. There was a true Israel, even inside Israel, Paul says in Romans 9. But when you come to the New Covenant, it's different. It's different. We shouldn't be surprised, I think. It's so radical what Christ does. What matters is, does the person profess faith in Jesus? A real saving faith. Not are they just born into a Christian family. Does that person believe? The covenant community is those, now in the new covenant, in the church, those who profess faith. Those who can say, yes, I've trusted Jesus. Which brings us to our pattern that we would practice here at our church. It'd be those who believe who are to be baptized. Those who can profess belief, only those who have believed are to be baptized. 
And that would be not just the Evangelical Free Church that we are. It'd be any Protestant church now that practice, practices believer baptism. So we're not that unique. Um, it'd be Baptist churches, Evangelical Free Churches, uh, different Protestant denominations. Let's look again at the chart there then for believer baptism. So our mode then we get to would be immersion, like we talked about in the practice. So who we baptize would be then those who can make with their mouth, and I would even say with their life at some, in some sense, a profession of faith. So a real, internal, born-again, transformed heart. And we view the meaning as an, first and foremost at least, as an outward symbol of an internal reality. Let me say that again. An outward act, an outward symbol that points to something that's already gone on in that person's heart. An internal, born-again, regeneration, spiritual renewal, whatever you want to call it. A uniting of that person's life with Christ's saving work, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The pattern throughout the New Testament, I would even say, is belief, then baptism. Belief, then baptism. So let's look at a couple verses to see that. Acts 2, 41. So those, uh, we're looking at Peter's um, sermon at Pentecost at the end of it. So that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter has a sermon at Pentecost. Acts 2.41 says they received his word, they believed the word, and then they were baptized. Here's another one. Philip's preaching in Samaria in Acts 8, verse 12. It says, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So then they were baptized, both men and women. When they believed the preaching of the gospel with Philip preaching, they were baptized. There is no specific verse in all of the New Testament that points to the fact that an ba- uh, infant was baptized. There's not one verse. Or anyone without expressing saving faith. The two places a Presbyterian might make the connection is the covenant and then a few verses that talk about a household being baptized when somebody came to believe. But there's no specific reference anywhere in the New Testament to an infant being baptized or uh, a baby without expressing saving faith. So it's clear from these passages, and there's uh, quite a bit, a few more, that baptism was administered, yes, as it replaced circumcision, yes, but not just as an outward sign anymore, but of a new reality, of a, of, of a completed work at the cross, and the Holy Spirit's then extraordinary work in a heart. That's what we see in the New Testament. So what about our kids then? As I said, we're going to answer a few hard questions. What about our kids? Let's say your child professes faith, and I pray they do. That's what our Sunday school teachers are doing. And that's as fathers and mothers and, and caretakers and grandparents. That's what we want to see happen, don't we? Don't you want that for your kids? To see them come to profess a real faith in Christ. But let's say they do. There's two schools of thought here. There are those that would say, Instant baptize, whether three, four, five, get it done, right? 
get them baptized. A little bit newer of a view, probably the last 100, 150 years, and perhaps a lot more. Uh, that's one view. There's another view that says, well, okay, baptism doesn't save, and they may have a real profession of faith, so let's let them mature a bit after that profession of faith so we can have some evidence of fruit in their life, some ownership over their salvation. We all know how impressionable kids are, don't you? And how they'll almost do anything their parents, you know, would want them to do. There's, that's a possibility there. And by waiting a bit, I think it actually means more to the child as well. So while, of course, the Bible doesn't give an exact age, and we don't want to be legalistic about it, we have to have a real practice here. We have to have a way we kind of generally do things. And not only that, our leadership, myself as a pastor and the elders, we're responsible of uh, not wanting to give people a false assurance of their salvation. I, mean, I want people to really know and have an assurance and that I can give that as best, I, as best we can as a body of believers. Only God knows, of course, every heart. But I'll be accountable someday too. If I give somebody a false assurance, maybe who's a child that maybe just professes and we all know those that have professed and then walked away or those who have professed and even baptized and walked away and there's no guarantees, Right? But we have to have some sort of way we do things. And so I do think that somewhere around, I do think we're not harming children by waiting a bit. It allows us to pour into their life. It allows us for them to understand it a bit more. It allows them to make it their own. It allows us to hopefully avoid um, giving a false sense or them just being impressionable children and doing what their parents want if we let them own it a little bit. And so I do think, you know, somewhere around, and of course we've got to just kind of go there, maybe 11. Like I said, not a legalistic or hard or fast rule, but I want them to really know what they're doing. I want them to understand it. So we have to land somewhere. But like I said, let's have a conversation. Let's talk. Let's say you're parenting your child. And you're like, my nine-year-old knows this. I know it. Let's have a conversation. But I do think a general place of around 11 gives us sort of a, a starting place, a, a springboard to jump off of. Here's another one, though. What do you do if you were baptized as an infant and now you're here at Bethany and you were never baptized as an adult? What do we do? How do we handle that? I'm just making this big case for believer baptism. Uh, throwing all these scriptures out. Saying that this is correct and this is what the Bible teaches. I would never want it to be an issue for us to divide over. Now, I would want to have a conversation with you. I would try to influence you and say, hey, take a look at this. What do you think? What do you think? Wrestle with this. Pray about it. Think about it. But you came from a Presbyterian background or a Catholic background. You wrestle with it. You talk with me. We wrestle with it. And you come to a place where you feel, you know what? I trust my parents. I trust what God was doing. I trusted my Presbyterian church. I am comfortable with that. I'm not going to deny you fellowship from our church. We're not going to do that. We're just not going to do that. And we'll go with that. But I will, I, I will say, we're going to make an effort. I'm doing it today, aren't I? Uh, we're going to talk about it. Uh, we're gonna, and, and if you come to a place, you know what? I, I do want to do it as an adult or as a teenager or as a 12-year-old. I do want to do it publicly here at Bethany. Then I would be comfortable saying, let's do it then. Let's do it. Hard questions, huh? But We've got to talk about them, don't we? Like, if we just leave it out there, we're, I'm going to be confused when you come. You're going to be confused when you, uh, you know, we're just, we've got to talk about these things. So that's a hard one. 
tough one, but I think we can work through all of these together in grace. So back to our chart real quick. So immersion, for those who have a credible profession of faith as a sign and a symbol, but I'll say this too, it's our final point, it is a real blessing too. It's not just some outward dead symbol. It is a real blessing. So the blessing of baptism to close today. So the practice, the pattern, and the blessing. We can't miss this to close today. It's not just an outward symbol or act. It's not. It is a true means of blessing in the life of a person and the church. And I'm comfortable even saying a true means of of grace as long as we don't mean like that it really uh, infuses a grace tank and you have to have a certain amount of grace and water in that tank. I'm okay with even saying it's a means of grace. It's a, it's a blessing. It is. Uh, and even with the Lord's Supper saying that. It's not just a cold outward sign. So let's look for a minute. Here's, how is it a blessing? Here's the first one. It's a public expression for the church now. It's a public expression for the church. I'm sure you've had these experiences too. I know I have. Some of my favorite Sundays in churches I've been a part of are, you know what Sundays baptism sunday aren't they amazing they're so wonderful when people stand up there they make a public profession they come up front and uh, and we get to be there and we get to see that beautiful picture of the church that you too that i too have experienced in christ dying and resurrecting for us you know what it really is you know in the old testament they used to take that they would read the word together and they'd renew the covenant when somebody gets baptized in front of us as a church it's a covenant new covenant renewal for all of us we all get to see it again and go yes that's what i'm part of that's what i've experienced too that's what they're experiencing too right now and we celebrate that's why it's so joyful it's a covenant renewal for all of us in that ceremony that's what we're doing it's joyous it's a celebration for the church but public too we don't do it in my office we don't do it in the, one of the Sunday school rooms. We do it here with the gathered church. Public, too. Why is that? Because a disciple of Jesus Christ is a disciple at all times. Wherever they go, wherever they're at. Our faith, if you look at our culture, it's been so privatized. We're told as Christians, keep it in your hearts, keep it in your home, keep it in your churches. That's where it belongs. And we've sort of bought into that a little bit. And, and, I, and I look at it, our life, and I look at our life together, and I look at the Word of God, and I look at what, what it means to be a disciple, and I look at the New Testament pattern. If you're able to compartmentalize your Christianity, just your private life, or just Sunday morning, I would encourage you to examine your Christianity. I would. I know that's, I know that's a heavy statement. But when we're called to be a disciple of Christ, it's private, yes, it's church, yes, but it's public, too. And so I think that is why the pattern we see is that we practice it publicly. And that's a blessing for the person, because it's only the beginning of living it publicly, and a blessing for the church. Well, it's a blessing. What did I say the first one was? Public expression for the church. Second one's this. It's a means of blessing to the person, too. It's a means of blessing to the person, too. To the individual, it's a joyous occasion. Now, you've seen some baptisms that come out of the water like this. Blah, they're like jumping up, like cheering, and they're like, you know, celebrating. It's joyful. And some people are more expressive than others. That's fine. 
But it's a blessing. It's a means, like I said, I would even be comfortable, a means of grace, a means of blessing. How could it not be? How could it not be? They too are publicly declaring what God has done to them in their heart. But what will also happen to them someday means you and I won't stay in the grave forever. That's what it means. You and I won't stay in the grave forever. But we'll have a body that will be resurrected and it'll be united to a soul that went on before it. It'll be, that's what that picture is. You will be glorified. That's why it's so joyful. Because Christ didn't stay dead. You're not going to stay dead. And your baptism makes that come alive in your heart. You just, yes, yes, that's what I believe. And we hold on to that. As I too, you too will be glorified someday and resurrected. That's what baptism shows. So don't miss out on the blessing. The real blessing now. Uh, by not getting baptized if you're a follower of Christ. Don't miss out on that. It's going to be a special day. It'll be a wonderful day. It'll be a glorious day. We'll celebrate. But finally, here's the last one, and it's blessing. It is necessary in one sense. Like, what? Wait a minute. Didn't we say we're, say we're saved by faith alone? How could it be necessary then? It's necessary in one sense. Not because it saves you, only faith alone in Christ, and the work of Christ is what saves you, but because it's commanded. It is an act of obedience that's necessary. It's an act of obedience that's necessary. A disciple is one who follows Jesus. She or he is one who wants to obey his teachings because he loves Jesus. She loves Jesus from the heart. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll obey my commandments, Jesus said. And he did, to be clear, command baptism. Let's take a look. Matthew 28, you know this verse. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And disciples will be what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's why we say that at baptism, if you ever wondered. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So, if you've truly trusted Christ and been born again, don't let fear hold you back. If you're nervous, we'll work through it. We'll talk about it. We'll make it as understandable and as clear as what we're going to do on that day as we can and prepare you for it. That, that's what a pastor does. If he does anything, he shepherds people. He comes alongside and says, let's walk through this together. As, as people, as a congregation. Let's come alongside each other. So don't let fear keep you away. Here's the second one. Don't let embarrassment keep you away. What do I mean by that? That's possible that some of you are sitting here going, you know what? I just put it off at the beginning. And now the beginning's really far back there. <laughs> I put it off and now it's 5, 10... I mean, I've been a Christian for 25 years. I can't get baptized now. Let me tell you a couple stories. Uh, the former pastor that I was just serving under, Pastor Tim, mentor of mine, great friend of mine, was serving at a church in Laguna Hills where I was at too before I was with him in San Luis. And he was there and he was, uh, had been through seminary, had graduated seminary, was a full-time pastor at the church. And it came time for this, the first baptism services. He was going to help our senior pastor, Don, 
lead. And he went to Don. He said, you know what? I'm helping with baptisms this Sunday. And Don's like, yeah, I'm excited. You get to help me. I'm going to be glad. We're gonna, it's the first time you get to help me. I'm really looking forward to it. And he goes, Don, I haven't been baptized yet. <laughs> He'd been a pastor for years. He'd been to seminary. He got saved when he was, a, I think, a, a child. He just had never done it. Well, Don said to him, hey, we'll get you in the tank first, then you get up, and you'll help us with the rest of them. <laughs> and so they did. And so they did. Uh, same church I was at. We're there, and, you know, our, our chairman of the elder board had been an elder multiple times, and he was there and in and out of the elder, and, you know, there is, has family at the church. Chair of the elder board goes, you know what? Guys, I haven't been baptized. He'd been there 30 years at the church. Been life, I think a lifelong Christian. What do we do? We work through it. Of course, he had to push through that and go, you know what? My obedience to Christ is more important than if somebody says, you haven't been baptized? We're not going to do that. We're not going to judge you. We're, we're going to embrace you and say, great. It's just as good now as it would have been uh, 10 seconds after you got saved. Let's baptize you. Don't let embarrassment keep you away either. It's a blessing and a commandment. So that's it. The why behind baptism. The practice, the pattern, and the blessing for us. If you have questions, of course, you're going to talk about it in your life group. I hope you do. I hope you gracious and gently talk about it. But if you have questions, I'm going to beeline to the gathering place today. Come talk to me today. Let's talk today. Or if it's, you're not quite sure, send me an email this week. Grab one of the elders. Let's make sure we let's keep this conversation going. Um, as we jump back in next week with another why. I think I'll you have to come back. I'll let you have to come back to see what the next one's going to be. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this day. Thank you for that we have baptism. I do realize as we talk about this, we have people from different places and backgrounds and church traditions wrestling with this this morning. May that be a joyful wrestle. This isn't about being right. This is just about being faithful and obedient. Um, we we want to be that, Lord. Um, today is not about a winning an argument. Today is about just what does the Bible say and how will we practice this at Bethany Church. So thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word that guides us toward that. Towards that. Thanks for baptism. It points us to a, a real spiritual reality and a real resurrection that's coming to us and a new spiritual life we've been given. I do pray for future baptisms that we have wonderful services and new faith and Maybe people who have been Christians for decades being baptized. We look forward to that joyful day when we have uh, baptism here again at Bethany Church. Uh, we respond, Lord, to you now for the grace you've shown us, the grace you've given us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.